Hello and welcome to a podcast about murder. I'm Jem and I'm here with the effervescent Freya to discuss the case of a serial killer today. How are you? I'm good. Everything is good. Everything is fine. Hoping for the end of this lot, uh, all of this stuff soon. Yeah. I mean, what more can you say, I guess? You get torn between this feeling of like, they're going to ease the lockdown and you're like, you want that to happen. But you know that when they're going like, yeah, get back to the office. Yeah, go to your friend's house. What are you doing? Staying at home. Go go to the office. And you're like, okay, but last time <laughs> that sounds we did, stupid. And then you guys were like, what the fuck are you doing going to the office? Yeah. They act like it's our <laughs> fault every time. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. Anyway, that's just a little bit of COVID politics. This episode will be delving into the life and crimes of Charles Sabraj, a serial killer also known as the Bikini Killer or the Serpent. I don't think the murders themselves necessarily warrant any particular warning, but we will be discussing situations involving psychological manipulation and coercion, as well as the inappropriate use of medical drugs. So people are drugged against their own will and without their own knowledge. So if that's something you're sensitive to, then you can not listen to this episode. And now I'm going to butcher his Indian name. <laughs> Hachand Barnani Gurumukh Charles Sabraj was born on the 6th of April 1944 in Saigon. His parents were Tran Lung Phan and Hachand Bhavani Sabraj. His mother was Vietnamese and his father Indian. Charles' mother worked as a shop girl in an expensive men's clothing shop owned by his father, who was a wealthy businessman. Charles' early life was marked by war, as Vietnam was repeatedly occupied by foreign nations, such as Japan and France. When he was just one year old, Charles and his mother were kidnapped and held for ransom. Charles' father paid the ransom, and they were both fine, but as you can imagine, this kind of atmosphere must have taken its toll on Charles' young mind. Mm. When Charles was three years old, his mother became pregnant with her second child by Hachand. Hachand, however, announced that he was abandoning his young family to marry another woman. Shortly afterwards, Tran met a French officer, Alphonse Darrault, whom she married. Darrault formally adopted her two children, Charles and his new baby sister. Charles remained intensely antagonistic towards his stepfather and refused to accept him as a paternal figure. Due to this strange relationship and Charles's desire to stay with his biological father, when Darrault was sent back to Marseille in France, Tran arranged for her son to stay with Hatchand and left with her husband and daughter, leaving her four-year-old son behind. It's interesting having you go through this, like because I'm reading a book about, about him right now. Mm. The book goes into a lot of detail. I'm not finished with it. It's called... My God, I can't believe I'm reading a book right now and I've forgotten what it's called. <laughs> it's called Serpentine. Serpentine. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Would you say Serpentine or Serpentine? I don't. Serpentine. I think you can say bo- both. Yeah, it's really good at the moment so far, but it's like, it's quite a long, detailed and narrative way of mm. describing what's uh, his life. So it's interesting having read through these things in detail and then have you kind of <laughs> go through them like in because obviously we don't have enough time like if we were going to talk about this yeah. guy's life if we talk literally if I talked about his life I mean it's so fascinating but if we were doing it in depth it would take us all day you literally it would literally take hours and hours and we would never get we wouldn't even get to him being a teenager 
he has this really complicated obsession with his biological father like you said where he mm-hmm. he's really into this idea that like his real dad is this godlike figure when his real dad is actually kind of a scumbag yeah <laughs> and just and is always trying to abandon him yeah but it's something that obviously has an effect on him as an adult because he just emulates his father because he views him as this wealthy businessman and it's like a man with money and power who treats women like garbage Mm, and that's exactly. basically, as we'll see, that's sort of who he becomes. So Tran abandoned Charles in Vietnam with his father. For several years, Charles was essentially left to fend for himself, as his stepmother wanted nothing to do with him. By the time his mother returned to Vietnam, he had already established a reputation as a troublemaker at school. Tran was shocked by her son's behaviour and, in agreement with her chand, reclaimed her parental authority. Charles was moved back in with his mother, his stepfather, and three siblings. Mm. Charles kept trying to escape back to his father's, and his mother grew more and more desperate to keep him away, resorting to locking him in the bathroom, and even reportedly tying him to a bed for several days on end. All this really accomplished was making Charles very good at escaping situations he didn't want to be in. There's a lot of stuff that I had to cut about his relationship with his mum, but it is... I wouldn't say it's a loveless relationship, but she can be... She has a very stern way of parenting and resorts to very um, traditional ways of child education. And if if I'm not mistaken, she was young. She was very young. I think she was 19 or something when he was born. So she's obviously lost in a sense. You know, she's going to feel some resentment towards him as like a young mother who maybe didn't want this to happen. Well, that's the other thing is that essentially a man who was in a strong position of power over her sort of kept her under Mm. with like you know just sort of kept her on the hook for years and years and she had these two kids that he would sort of he didn't care about he wouldn't really support them i mean i think he did support them financially but just abandoned them and she was also as you said very young i think she was maybe a teenager when they met in 1953 his mother and stepfather returned to marseille taking charles with them Around this time, Charles developed a bedwetting problem, most likely due to the numerous abandonments he had suffered during his childhood. When Charles was nine, his mother and stepfather returned to Vietnam with their children, but decided to leave Charles and his sister in France in Catholic boarding schools. At this time, Charles didn't even speak proper French, and he was the victim of racist bullying by other children at the school. Mm. His mother and stepfather eventually returned, and the family then moved to Africa for a while, where a teenage Charles developed a knack for stealing from local shops. He performed poorly in school and eventually dropped out. Charles ran away multiple times during his adolescence, attempting to make his way back to Vietnam. He would stow away on ships, but would always inevitably be found out, and return to his mother... And then his parents would have to pay the fee of his illegal trip, which made him a financial burden on the family on top of his unruly behaviour. Mm. Yeah, so he's got these... He's always trying to get back to Saigon to... Yeah, it's a, it's obsessively... Um, it's all he thinks about, basically. Mm. By the time Charles was 16, his stepfather could tell there would be no way to convince him to stop trying to run away to Vietnam. He approached Charles with a proposal... He would write to Hachen Sabraj, asking him if he would be willing to take Charles back. If he was, Charles would be allowed to return to his father in Vietnam. If he wasn't, Charles would accept his answer and stop trying to escape from his family in France. Charles readily agreed to his stepfather's proposal. Hachen replied to the letter, stating that he would shortly be in Paris on business. 
and the matter would be discussed then in person. I think it's worth pointing out that the guy, the stepfather, the French guy, yeah, is like pretty, re- you know, he's a re- he seems like a reasonable guy, and he's taken this, he's taken these kids under his wing, which is nice, and he's trying to offer Charles, uh, yeah, he's trying to offer Charles all the help that he can kind of. Well, this is the thing. Tran wasn't married when Charles and his sister were born and he formally adopted them. So he's given him Mm. a legal, like he's given him some sort of security in life from the get-go. Yeah, and he goes out of his way to try and get him French citizenship and things like that to help him have a sense of... And uh, in in the book, he he says to the mom, like the reason he's like this is because he feels like he doesn't have an identity and we can't be, you know, we've got to be sensitive and to, yeah. to the, the fact that he's, he seems like a nice, reasonable guy, but unfortunately, because of the how damaged <laughs> this child is, he doesn't seem to be able to accept help from this guy. He's just yeah. always obsessed with this, his real dad, who is, yeah. not, who is not offering him these things. So it's Well, he really doesn't care about him. At all, yeah, and it's and it's sad that he can't accept this fatherly, th- this fatherly stuff coming from a stepdad. Yeah, no, and he would even find him. You know, he got kicked out of school, and his stepfather would find him work. He went and talked to teachers. He would really try and figure out solutions for Charles, which is, mm. you know, more than most stepfathers would do with a kid this difficult. I think father and son were reunited on the sixth of January, nineteen sixty-one. His father agreed that Charles would be allowed to return to Vietnam with him, where he would start working in one of his shops. Charles was obviously overjoyed. Hachan promised he would send a plane ticket as soon as Charles had the proper documentation to travel and return to Asia. Alphonse then started procedures to get Charles an official French passport. Charles waited for news from his father for several weeks after he got his passport, growing steadily more anxious with every passing moment, thinking that he had been forgotten yet again. Desperate, he decided he would buy his own ticket. The only problem was that his job at a restaurant didn't pay him nearly enough to cover the price of a plane ticket to Asia, so he decided to turn to armed robbery in order to quickly get the money he needed. He broke into two women's homes, holding them at gunpoint as he stole their money. The second time he did this, he was caught by the police, and although both victims ultimately withdrew their complaints against him, his passport and nationality were revoked. Alphonse was able to obtain a laissez-passer, which is a sort of temporary one-use travel document, and Hatchand finally sent the ticket. Charles left for Vietnam in March 1961. There, Charles became acquainted with his half-sisters, learned to speak English, and started practicing martial arts. However, he quickly became bored of his job in his father's shop and started committing petty crimes and gambling. Ultimately, his disrespectful and unruly behaviour meant that he would return to France, more or less disowned by Hutchand. Mm. Upon returning to France, Charles was granted a temporary visitor's permit and was not allowed to legally be employed in the country. This, of course, only encouraged him to continue his life of petty crime, mostly stealing cars, which landed him in prison on several occasions. He also received a deportation... Deportation? Deportation. You went all fancy with it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Deportation, darling. (laughs) Deportation. Yeah, deportation. (laughs) He also received a deportation order. The problem was he was technically nationless, so the authorities didn't know where to deport him to. 
During his time in prison, he met and befriended Félix Descogne, a wealthy man who volunteered at the prison offering legal aid. Mm. He provided Charles with a lot of literature during his time in prison and was one of the first people to actually take interest in his well-being. I find this relationship really interesting as well because it's, again, it's like this person who comes into his life trying, kind of mirroring the stepdad in a way, trying to Mm -hmm. help him. And it's just gonna go down this black hole of like but the thing is unlike his stepdad i don't think there's ever any resentment um on charles's behalf towards him and he actually does say that he's like you've become my father and like you're so important in my life and i'm really grateful to you yeah no it is it is different but it's um but it's interesting that he keeps to having these really intense relationships with these people yeah that are basically about him looking for parenting essentially yeah but he also sets them up for failure because in his mind, they're such a huge godlike figure that mm. any time they show that they're not, he's just disappointed and it's like, yeah, you know, yeah. it destroys him. Felix eventually discovered an old law that stated that people born in Saigon during a certain time period automatically had the right to French citizenship. Felix also allowed Charles to move in with him once he was released from prison in 1968 and tried to offer him a fresh start in life, introducing him to upper-class Parisian society. At a dinner party, Charles met a beautiful young girl called Chantal Compagnon. The two started dating, and she remained blissfully unaware of his criminal background until he was arrested for driving a stolen car in 1970. She remained loyal to him in spite of this, and the two married upon his release from prison. Charles became more and more audacious with his criminal activities, adding fraud to his long list of crimes. Knowing that the police were going to catch up with him, he decided to flee the country with Chantal in late 1970, who was now pregnant. While on the run, Charles would start his career of conning tourists and stealing their passports in order to remain anonymous as they crossed borders. The couple spent three months on the run before finally settling in Mumbai, where Chantal gave birth to their daughter Usha in November 1970. Here, Charles fully settled into a life of crime, using his talent for disguise and his undeniable charisma to charm tourists and scam them. After a while, Charles was even able to befriend many wealthy Asian businessmen and started to make a name for himself as a gem trader. Charles was eventually caught and arrested for robbery. With Chantal's help, he was able to escape from prison and the two fled to Afghanistan. There, both Chantal and Charles were arrested in July 1972, not for their involvement in a number of crimes, but because they had forgotten to pay their hotel bill. <laughs> Classic. It is crazy how it's like they would have gotten away with this had they not forgotten this one minor thing. Once the police started looking into them, however, they discovered Charles's criminal past fairly easily. Once again, Charles was able to escape prison, leaving Chantal behind. He hadn't abandoned her completely. His plan was to return to France and pick up Usha, who had been sent to live with Chantal's parents several months before Charles's arrest in India. Then, the two of them would head back to Afghanistan and somehow free Chantal, and then rebuild their life as a family. Charles was travelling with two women at the time he committed his first murder. One was a nanny he had hired to look after Usha, the other was a tourist who had hitched a ride with them. Charles had stolen a car to cross the border into Iran. He had subdued its owner and placed him in the trunk of the car, planning on dumping him by the side of the road in a less visible area. However, the car's owner had died, most likely from heat stroke or dehydration. As Charles was ditching the body, the tourist travelling with them discovered him. He convinced her to keep quiet about it, although she would ultimately divulge to an undercover Interpol agent that she was travelling with a French smuggler and passport forger. Charles was arrested, and many of the countries he had committed crimes in started connecting them back to him. 
1973, Chantal, still imprisoned in Afghanistan, read that Charles was to be extradited to France and tried for his various crimes. When her family finally paid her bail, she was allowed to return to France and was reunited with her daughter. Although she still loved Charles, she decided to sever all contact with him for her and Usha's good. True to form, Charles managed to escape from prison before his extradition and made his way to Turkey, where he settled in late 1973. He would spend the next two years on the run. He was at a loss following what he perceived as Chantal's betrayal and abandonment. Mm. However, his younger half-brother André would soon fill the void in his life. André idolised his older brother and was willing to do almost anything for him. He became Charles's partner in crime, and the duo operated primarily in Turkey and Greece, where they were eventually arrested in Athens. Yeah, I, w- I read this went back to their childhood as well, like that yeah. that they were they were really close, but also that they looked really similar, yeah. and that that sort of contributed to this feeling that they were of closeness. Yeah, because I don't I I assume he's maybe one of the older children that Tran and Alphonse had, but I'm not sure. But um, no, I remember there was one incident that was in the book that I read where when they were living in Africa and he was starting his sort of first robberies when he would break into shops and steal sweets for his and toys for his um, siblings. Mm. His sister and André came with him and they were just like wowed by the fact that he was so good at this and so slick. And then they tried to do it without him. Yeah. And they were found out, obviously. So there's obviously a history of um, him wanting to emulate Charles. Mm. So when they were arrested, Charles convinced André to switch identities with him. He knew that the police would focus their attention on the notorious international criminal Charles Sobrage, and posing as André Darrault, Charles was able to escape, leaving his brother to rot in jail for 18 years. So obviously the feelings aren't um, mutual. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately. I mean, this is really sad for André, but... Yeah, it is sad because, yeah, without his influence, would he be, he'd probably not be in that situation. Yeah. I think he's just a very influenceable person. Is that a word? Had to call you Inf- out there. Influenceable? <laughs> is that a word? <laughs> I would I would say easily uh, influenced. Yeah, that's probably more correct. I can't miss an opportunity to drag down the English queen. <laughs> <laughs> Following this, Charles spent some time travelling around Asia before finally settling in Thailand. Over this time, he developed his typical con. He would approach tourists, befriend them by posing as a wealthy gem salesman, then drug them in order to steal their passports and possessions. In the spring of 1975, Charles met Quebecois tourist Marie-André Leclerc. She immediately fell under his spell, and he convinced her to uproot her life and move to Bangkok with him. In doing so, she became the first and most devout member of the small community he would build in Thailand. As soon as she arrived in Thailand, Charles convinced her to use a false name, assuring her that it was for her safety. Aware that Marie-André was a fiercely independent woman, Charles set about intentionally trying to psychologically break her. He borrowed money from her, guilted her for being wary of him despite his numerous ongoing affairs, and kept her passport from her, effectively making her his prisoner, as she was financially and emotionally dependent on him. Around this same time, Charles met and befriended a young Indian man named A.J. Chowdhury. A.J. quickly became Charles's right-hand man, assisting him in any way that he could in his criminal activities. Charles and Marie-André moved into a flat in a residence known as Canit House. This would become their base of operations. 
Charles, Marie-André and AJ developed a well-practiced routine, befriending and drugging tourists in order to steal from them. Often, Charles would drug his victims with laxatives and convince them they were suffering from dysentery. Then, Marie-André, posing as a nurse, would administer various medicines in order to cure them of this illness. This actually allowed her to keep drugging them, inducing and maintaining a state of physical weakness and emotional dependency on the couple until they had what they needed from them. Wow. That is bizarre. Yeah. Very devious (laughs) behavior. It's so much more complicated than I feel like it needs to be. It just shows such a callous disregard for a person. Mm. I don't know. It's it's one thing to off someone for their money, which is terrible. But like to keep a person alive in a state of almost like torture, like a physical yeah. thing, keep them alive and then keep draining them of their. It's that's like shows such a callousness. Well, it's also like it keeps them in a state where they're constantly not really sure of what's happening in reality because you are physically weak. So you don't mm. completely understand what's happening around you. Yeah. Which is awful. Yeah, it's like mental and physical kind of abuse all mm. going on at the same time. And it's the fact that then they're placed as these like saviors or people who are helping them. So their victims often feel like, oh, I should be doing more because you guys have been so nice to me. Mm. And it's just like a whole weird... I, like, I can't imagine being in that kind of position. And I also don't know how Marie-André sort of... I guess she's just so um, in love with Charles that she'll do anything he asks. But she is essentially, I assume, a normal person who had a normal upbringing. That's <laughs> <laughs> such a funny way of putting it. Well, because Charles has clearly suffered some kind of psychological damage from yeah. his childhood that has maybe manifested itself in some form of psychopathic or sociopathic behavior. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know, I, I know exactly think... what you mean. It's just <laughs> funny. It's just a funny way of putting it. But yeah, he's able to just use people completely and utterly. Yeah. And and any normal person might, it's kind of like the Manson effect as well. Yeah. People compare him a lot to Charles Manson as a sort of character. We might discuss this a bit later, but, you know, he got very into philosophy when he was in prison, when Felix was bringing him all these books and stuff. And he's a huge fan of Nietzsche. Nietzsche? I don't know how you say it in English. I think it's Nietzsche. And he sort of views himself as the superhuman because Mm. he's above everyone else, because he's so much smarter than everyone else. And also I was thinking for Marie-André, maybe you can justify it to yourself because you're not killing people. Mm. You're just sort of making them feel bad for a bit. So it was in this manner of drugging innocent people and maintaining them in a state of physical weakness that Charles subjugated a young Frenchman named Dominique Renelot in September 1975. Thinking that he was suffering from an ongoing case of dysentery and had been generously taken in by Charles and Marie-André, who were very attentive carers, Dominique felt himself indebted to the couple and lived with them for the next few months doing housework or assistant work for Charles. Which is also insane that they've managed to manipulate this guy so much that he feels so indebted to them that he's working for them as like a slave, basically. It's crazy. During this time, Charles stole his passport and his traveler's checks, meaning that if he ever tried to escape Kanit House, he would be lost in Thailand with no money and no means of identification. Dominique was trapped. Two more additions were made to the quote-unquote family Charles was assembling at Kanit House. Yannick Massy and Jean-Jacques Philippe, two former French policemen from the colonies. 
Rather than drugging them, however, Marie-André took them out drinking, giving Charles enough time to steal their passports and savings. When they discovered their possessions had disappeared, Charles assured them that he- they could stay with them at Kenneat House while he arranged everything with the embassy for them. This, of course, was a lie. The two were also completely dependent on Charles. Mm. During this time, Charles created and maintained several aliases, such as Alain Dubois, Alain Gauthier, Roland Liseur, Jacques-Pierre Marchand, and Charles Surdeur. <laughs> I couldn't tell where each of those names began and ended. <laughs> <laughs> but this created confusion around his true name and identity, which was ultimately what allowed him to avoid capture for so long. Mm. In order to befriend his victims, he would often pose as either a wealthy gem salesman or an illustrious drug dealer. So I think he knows how to play a crowd, basically. Yeah. Which we've already um, discussed. Charles' first known intentional murder victim was 18-year-old Teresa Knowlton. She was a young woman from Seattle who was traveling across Asia, planning on settling in Kathmandu and becoming a Buddhist nun. She had traveled to Asia before on several occasions, and it is hypothesized that she had smuggled drugs on a few of these occasions. So this fleeting connection to the Asian drug trade may have been what attracted Charles' attention, as he openly despised anything to do with drugs, which seems quite ironic to me, given Mm. given how he pretends to be a drug dealer and is also constantly drugging people. Yeah. But apparently he had a huge... uh, hatred towards drugs and what they did to people that's so bizarre (laughs) yeah (laughs) i don't think we're in any position to try and start making sense of his like psyche but there's a lot of like contradictions it seems to me Teresa had checked into the hotel malaysia on the 13th of october it was there that aj approached Teresa and invited her to spend the evening at kanit house Charles arrived a little later in the evening and asked Teresa if she would like to go to his and his wife's bungalow near the beach resort of Pattaya. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but... Five days later, on the 18th of October, this is where Teresa's body was found, floating in a tidal pool, face down, dressed only in a bikini. Originally, investigators did not assume her death was a murder, as there were no signs of injury other than a small cut on her neck, which they assumed was caused by the fisherman's nets that she had been caught in. Her picture was sent to newspapers in the hope of identifying the body, but she would remain unidentified for over seven months. AJ and Charles had driven out to Pattaya with Teresa. They had drugged her with Mogadon, dressed her in a bikini, making sure to strip her body of any distinctive jewellery, and strangled her to death. AJ had then swum out to sea with her and let her body be carried out by the current. Sabraj's next victim was Vitali Hakim, a heroin dealer. He had been seen in Charles's flat by a neighbour of his on the 27th of October 1975, where he had purchased over $1,000 worth of gems from him. Many suppose that the two had struck up an acquaintanceship over their involvement in the drug trade, and think that Vitali was both eager for company and especially vulnerable, because he had started taking heroin himself. So he'd lost a lot of weight as a result of this, and the effect, the effect of the drugs that Charles had fed him was quite overwhelming because of this. Under the pretense of going to visit a gem mine, Charles, AJ and Vitali left Kanit House at 11pm on the 27th of October. Dominique recalls Vitali staggering, seemingly unable to carry his own weight. Charles and AJ drove Vitali south. When he awoke, they drugged and interrogated him about his contacts in the drug trade. They then drove to Pattaya, the place where Teresa Knowlton had been murdered. 
Charles' description of the murder, as reported in On the Trail of the Serpent, is as follows. AJ and I dragged the Turk out of the car, and clack, I broke his neck. I took out the petrol and left it next to the body. I reversed the car back onto the road and faced it in the direction of the highway, about 600 metres from the track. Then I came back to AJ, and we threw some rags over his face and poured petrol on it. My God. It burns better that way. The rags stopped the liquid from evaporating. If you put it straight on the face, most of the petrol just runs to the ground. I poured some more under the head and the body, and all through his clothes, soaking them. Otherwise, it would have just burned the grass. After the petrol had soaked through everything, I say to AJ, Okay, in one minute you light, and as soon as you do, run towards the car. Already I started hurrying to the car, because I knew there would be a big flame. I got in the car, turned on the lights, and then I saw it. Whoosh. A big red flame. The whole sky lit up. AJ came running, and we drove off. I There's something about when killers use, like, egregious use of onomatopoeia in the... Yeah. <laughs> like clack i broke his neck whoosh the fire went up it's like (laughs) jesus christ but it does a lot to help you understand the complete lack of like empathy and in that yeah you know the burnt remains of vitali hakim's body were found on the 29th of october by a local rice farmer the autopsy revealed that hakim had actually been burned alive did you say he'd been he'd been burned alive yeah, which is a strange inconsistency with Charles's account of the murder because he seems to suggest that he broke his neck and killed him instantly. Well, could he so, he could have broke his neck in a sense, but not fully, but then he mm-hmm. just kind of passed out. I mean, I would pass out yeah. if you if you broke my neck or partially broke yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So, but the reason they know that he was definitely burned alive is that they found smoke in his lungs. That is so absolutely had to horrific. That is, I, I mean, can't imagine a worse thing. Like, I actually can't. Yeah. I mean, in this case, I don't know how conscious he was of being burned alive, but I guess, but that doesn't, I mean, it doesn't make it better, but I'm just saying, like, I hope at least that he was passed out to the point where he didn't feel he it. maybe couldn't feel and if his neck was broken i'd i'd like to think that would be kind of like having some kind of spinal tap like he might not have had proper pain yeah no it is awful and it's the fact that and i guess he's telling he's recounting this murder having committed several others but that this is his second murder and he seems to be like no i know how to burn a body Mm. you need to do it like this otherwise it doesn't work and i'm like well how did you gain this this knowledge yeah yeah but he has this way of like like you said he was uh sort of basically Mm. a con man for yeah that's his job is conning people and conning them mostly into the idea that he has success Mm -hmm. that he has wealth that he's succeeded in all of these things and that he knows about all of this stuff and he's amazing and he, and he lies basically all the time so I kind of just feel like this is another yeah extension of that personality where it's like I know all about this yeah I'm an ex- expert yeah, everything yeah. I do that's exactly it and we'll discuss it a little bit towards the end of the episode but it's interesting because the people who wrote the book that I read interviewed him several times and they were just like but he knows everything he's so in control and he really does very tightly control the image that others have of him and he wants that image to be that he Mm. is a very intelligent man who knows exactly what he's doing all the time so of course he lies to corroborate that 
As with Teresa Knowlton's murder, there was little evidence found at the scene and it was thought to be a suicide, which is a weird thing that happens a lot when police find a body that's been horrifically burned to death and they assume it's a suicide. And I just don't know why (laughs) you ever would commit suicide in this way or why you would assume a person would. But it must have happened enough times. There are so many more options that it just blows my mind that anyone would consider that. But it's not unheard of. No, and I do think it's also possible that someone may not be uh, in a completely lucid state of mind and do it. But it is very rare to kill yourself by burning. Extremely rare, Yeah, I would say. So I would agree with you that it's definitely not like get onto the scene, burned person, definitely a suicide. Yeah, like, I, I find that logic a bit strange. Yeah, I would never make that like an instant first connection at all. Yeah, we'll get into police incompetence <laughs> a bit later. Sabraj and Chowdhury's next known victims were a young Dutch couple, Henk Bitania and his fiancée Cornelia Hemke. Charles had met them in Hong Kong in early December 1975 and invited them to Bangkok, where the couple planned to spend a week in order to renew their visas and continue their trek across Asia. They arrived at Kanit House on the 12th of December, and by the next day they had fallen ill with the same mysterious illness that struck a lot of its inhabitants. It is thought that Charles had planned on making Henk and Cornelia members of his entourage in a similar way to Dominique, Yannick and Jacques. However, his process of basically making them dependent on him was cut short by the arrival of Vitali Hakim's girlfriend, Charmaine Carew, who was looking into her boyfriend's disappearance. Seemingly panicked by her arrival, Charles and AJ drove the couple out to the small town of Rangsit on the night of December 15th, under the pretext of giving them a drive to the hospital for medical attention. The two were beaten and burned by the side of the road, where they were discovered the next morning by a group of schoolchildren who had been drawn to the bodies by the presence of dark smoke. So Mm, there's an escalation, I would say, in the violence of these murders. Is the burning about identification or I think so. is it just about maximum <laughs> suffering? It's hard. To, I mean, it could be. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. But I do think it's because he's smart enough to know that if they're burned, there's no trace of DNA, either of him or AJ or the person themselves. And maybe it just it slows down the whole thing because police to figure out who that person is. and blah, Yeah, blah, blah. if so they have no kind of... idea who the person is, then they have nothing to go on. On that same morning, December 16th, the Bangkok Post published a story about yet another victim of Charles and AJ. Shahmin Kahu, Vitali's French girlfriend, had been found in a tidal pool in Pattaya. Her bikini-clad corpse bore an eerie resemblance to that of Teresa Knowlton. Although she was as yet unidentified, police were treating her death as a murder. While investigators had not yet linked the two crimes, the similarity of the victims, dressed in bikinis, led to Sabraj earning the nickname the Bikini Killer. On December 18th, Yannick drove Charles, AJ and Marie-André to the airport, where they boarded a flight to Nepal. On his way back, he purchased a newspaper featuring an article on the two burned bodies that had been discovered, mistakenly identified as Australian tourists. Horrified, Yannick realised that he recognised the charred remains of the skirt the woman was wearing. Despite the investigators' claims that the couple were Australian, Yannick knew without a shadow of a doubt that the victims were Henk and Cornelia. Hmm. This confirmed the mounting suspicions he and the other residents of Canite House shared regarding the true nature of Charles and Marie-André's business. 
Upon returning to Canit House, Yannick, Jean-Jacques and Dominique decided to flee the country. With no money or passports, they decided to break into Charles' safe, where they discovered numerous stolen passports and other items, presumably belonging to his other victims. They were able to flee to Paris before Charles and the others were due to return from their trip, notifying the authorities upon their arrival. Charles and Marie-André had used Henk and Cornelia's passports to get into Nepal, a fact that would later irrefutably tie them to the murders. While in Nepal, they murdered Laurent Carrière and Connie Bronzich on the night of December 22nd. Their bodies were found, mutilated and burned, several days later. These murders were demonstrably more violent than the previous ones, as they had involved a knife. The victims bore traces of multiple stab wounds. Unlike the other murders, however, these bodies were almost immediately identified by friends of the victims who had been travelling with them. They recognised Connie's jewellery. What's more, Connie had mentioned Alain Gauthier in her journal in the days leading up to her death, as well as writing down his address at Canit House. Police raided the hotel room Charles and Marie-André had been staying in on December 28th, but the couple had already fled to India. Quite sadly for Marie-André, this new phase of their relationship wasn't a major red flag, but a great new start, as she hoped that being complicit in murder and on the run together would strengthen their relationship. In her journal, she writes, quote, It is a new start. Spiritual, physical connection, tenderness, glow, complicity... Everything is shared, and we make only one person. I belong to him. I feel I am desired, loved for myself, that he needs me, my presence, my smile to live. At last, I am happy. End quote. God. (laughs) It's so... Okay. But it's like the fact that this is just like, that she believes this with her whole heart. (laughs) It's just very uh, depressing. As the trio made their way through India... They poisoned and stole from numerous people, murdering at least one other person, Avani Jacob, an Israeli scholar who was on holiday. During this time, Charles basically came to see himself as untouchable and completely above the law. He saw himself as a kind of super genius who could outsmart anyone he met, and who justified his murders to himself by stating that he never killed a good person. And I will say the exception to this is the last victim, Avani Jacob, because this is the only one where in interviews afterwards, Charles is sort of like, I feel bad for him because he was a hard worker on holiday and like he had nothing to do with it. But at the same time, right. it's like just a means to an end kind of for him. I just, uh, I can't, you just can't imagine like, oh yeah, I feel bad about that one. It's like, it's killing a person. It's not nicking their wallet. Yeah. <laughs> You know, like, if I was, like, I said a terse word to someone, I'd be like, oh, that's a shame because I didn't deserve mm. it. <laughs> but it's not it's not a terse word. It's, like, a murder. But it's also, like, how... <laughs> a murder. How are Cornelia and Hank, for example, not good people? Mm. I think, oh, this may be something... I'm not entirely sure if this applies to all the victims, but part of the reason there are so many people travelling in Asia at this time is because of the hippie trail. Mm-hmm. And maybe because he hates drugs so much, he's like, if you take drugs, you deserve to die. He's convinced himself that, like, hippies deserve to die, essentially. Yeah. It is interesting that he thinks that these people are, like... It, it kind of goes back to his whole thing about people are either untouchably great or they're yeah. nothing and they're absolutely worthless. Everyone is either perfect and therefore, like, worthy of his his respect or they're so they're worth so little 
that they deserve to but die. It's literally like he just sees them as like things that he can acquire. It's like passport, wallet. Mm. Yep, that's worth a murder to me. Charles was so confident in his superiority that he even returned to Thailand in March 1976, knowing that people were now looking for the man known as Alain Gauthier. Even though he and his accomplices were interrogated by the Thai police, they ultimately didn't have enough evidence to be absolutely sure of the murder charges, and apparently feared the bad press the country would get for the murder trial, as it would heavily impact the tourist industry, so they didn't pursue the investigation further. And I think it's important to keep in mind that basically the Thai authorities don't want to stop him, in a way, because they think that it would sort of harm their the reputation of Thailand. Which is like, but then surely if he keeps doing it, that's worse. <laughs> I'm confused by this rationalization. It's like, if we stop the murders, then everyone will know that there was a murder. Like, but wouldn't that make you look good? <laughs> if you stop maybe them. it's like so far we don't know that these aren't just a series of very strange suicides <laughs> <laughs> so if we don't if we can't prove that they're murders then there's no murder to look for but yeah there's a weird logic there where they sort of don't want to see what's actually going on while the authorities in thailand dropped the case in europe people were starting to catch on to sabrage's crimes not only had the three French escapees gone to the police with their story, the Dutch authorities were looking into Henk and Cornelia's disappearance. Diplomat Herman Nippenberg started piecing together information and eventually realised that the murdered couple that had mistakenly been reported as Australian may have actually been Dutch. Mm. He and his wife arrived in Bangkok to continue their investigation in February 1976, where he was able to identify the bodies of Henk and Cornelia. What made them think in the first place that they had to be Australian? No, but what makes it even stranger that they came to this conclusion is that she was wearing, I think it was her, it could have been him, but one of them was wearing a shirt that said, like, I love the Netherlands or something, which... <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Or were they, I guess they maybe... look at that and they were like, ah, the Australians are known for loving the Netherlands. <laughs> So, uh, but they must be was, Australian. There might have been a missing Australian couple around the same time. Okay. I guess it's, it's, it is a bit weird that someone from the Netherlands would wear a top that says, I love the Netherlands. I would never wear a top that was like, I heart London or I heart England. That yeah. would never happen. <laughs> and I've never, I've actually, even the most patriotic English person, I have never seen anyone wear like a t-shirt that's like, I heart England. Yeah. <laughs> or I heart But UK. I guess... Maybe it could have, it, you know, it could have been like a going away present before they went on their like sabbatical or whatever, as a funny gift. Maybe a couple they they were witnessed before the murders and interacted with people, and maybe their accents and their just overall foreignness to the region got mixed up because they're going to be speaking English. Yeah, I assume to be most understood, and sometimes some Dutch people you could mistake them from coming for quite a few different places. Yeah. Also, these Thai people are probably just like, it's fucking white person, isn't it? Could be from anywhere. <laughs> yeah. The local authorities confirmed Nippenberg's hunch that Sabraj was involved in the deaths of Cornelia and Henk, as proven by their passports and their possessions in his house. However, they were unwilling to go much further with the case for the reasons previously stated. 
Undeterred by the local law enforcement's lack of response to Sobraja's crimes, Nippenberg was allowed to conduct his own investigation. Little by little, Nippenberg was able to untangle the web of deception that surrounded Sobraj and the murders. And he basically put together like this airtight case before going to the sort of head of the authorities with it because he wanted to be absolutely certain that they would follow through with it, basically. Mm. On the 11th of March, the Thai police raided Sobraj's flat looking for Alain Gauthier. So <laughs> Sobraj was there, but he posed as someone else saying that, well, I don't know, Alain. Alain's just gone. And they were like, okay. <laughs> I can't <laughs> believe that it. worked. But also, like, when you said he posed, as, like, for some reason I imagined, like, this this cartoonish, like, scenario where he's pretending to be a lamp, sh- like, with a lampshade <laughs> on his head or something, pretending to be a piece of furniture. I don't know, Alain. I'm just an armchair. <laughs> but the police more or less dropped the investigation and they stated that they had found nothing incriminating in the flat. Nippenberg, who had been intentionally left out of this raid, was furious. The trio of AJ, Sabraj, and Marie-André had managed to escape once again and fled the country. When Nippenberg was finally able to access the flat, he found overwhelming evidence that Sabraj had been behind countless murders. The possessions of his victims were strewn all over the place, as well as frankly ridiculous amounts of drugs used to induce nausea, unconsciousness, hallucinations, and so on. Like, I think it was in the tens of thousands of bottles of, like, <laughs> drugs and stuff. They also found Marie-André's personal diary, which obviously gave them a major insight into the criminal activities Sabraj was involved in and the kind of person they were dealing with. And I think when they went into the flat, it was literally like, oh, that's Teresa Knowlton's purse, and that's so-and-so's t-shirt. Like, it, they weren't hiding it at all, and it was very obvious. During this time, the trio made their way to Malaysia. This is the last place AJ Chowdhury was ever seen. Some speculate that Sabraj killed his former associates, and others that they merely parted ways, as there were reports of him being sighted in Germany after this. No remains were ever found, and investigators are looking for him to this very day. Following their stint in Malaysia, Marie-André and Charles made their way to Geneva to sell gems, and then boldly decided to head back to Paris, Unaware of the fact that in Thailand and across Asia, newspapers were reporting on the murders with accompanying photos of the two of them. In Paris, Charles was eventually tipped off that Interpol was searching for Alain Gauthier. He decided to ditch the alias and headed down to his mother's house in Marseille with Marie-André. Unfortunately for Charles, it seemed as though his good luck was running out. On the 12th of May 1976, Interpol received word from Canada that Marie-André had told her parents to contact Madame Sobrage in case of emergency. Charles's mother, Tran. A week passed before Interpol was able to confirm that Charles Sobraj and Alain Gauthier were in fact one and the same, and issued a warrant for both his, Marie-André, and A.G. Chaudhuri's arrests, having finally been able to confirm the identities of Theresa Knowlton, Henk Bitania, Cornelia Hemke, and Vitaly Hakim. Sobraj and Marie-André fled to India. There, he killed Jean-Luc Solomon by accidentally overdosing him during a robbery. So he's getting kind of sloppy and panicked at this point. He's miscalculating the dosages of his usual cocktail of drugs. In India, Charles started assembling another criminal family by enlisting the help of three female tourists, Jean, Barbara and Mary. On the 5th of July, the team drugged a group of French tourists by giving them what they claimed were anti-dysentery pills. Their plan was to steal around 60 passports at once. 
The crude mixture of laxatives and sleeping pills had been poorly dosed, and as such, the students started collapsing almost immediately. Ambulances and policemen were called, though Charles remained calm throughout. Three students who had not been poisoned surrounded him to make sure he wouldn't escape. While Sabraj was able to convince the local police that he must have simply purchased some dodgy pills, the French embassy had been alerted. Superintendent Tully arrived at the scene and immediately recognised Sabraj. He was able to confirm his identity by checking an appendectomy scar, and Sabraj was finally taken into custody. So it's quite funny to me that he was able to get away with such outlandish crimes for so long. And then his downfall is just a sort of like... Like, I don't know, the fact that the superintendent arrives and is like, this is our guy, I can confirm it, lock it, put him away, boys. Like, <laughs> there's no, like, once he's actually caught, it's done, kind of. It's almost, like, anticlimactic. Yeah. I guess it it just shows that he was starting to get panicked because he was trying to do such a big operation and had so badly miscalculated the drugs that it's almost it's almost like a comedy that they were at this restaurant and literally like dozens of people started collapsing at once just proving that he had drugged them his accomplices were rounded up shortly afterwards mary barbara and jean confessed almost immediately as did marie andre who calmly handwrote a detailed statement about their crimes and her involvement in them sabrage was initially charged only with the murder of jean-luc sodomont and the four of them were sent to Tihar prison. I don't know if it's Tihar or Tihar prison, but Tihar prison is apparently known for being quite brutal, and both Mary and Barbara Mm. reportedly attempted suicide while awaiting trial. Sabraj was ultimately sentenced to 12 years in prison, and Marie-André was found guilty of drugging the French students and being an accomplice to Sabraj. She was deported back to Canada, where she developed ovarian cancer, which she died of in 1984. She was reportedly loyal to Charles until the very end of her life. That's a bit bizarre. You'd think the separation would have kind of broken the spell, but I guess not. Well, it's also like you can't... I don't know how easy it would be psychologically to come to terms with the fact that you were basically... You allowed yourself to be manipulated by this guy and do horrible things and he never cared about you. Hmm. I think it would be easier to believe that you were in love and you were in it together and it was like this crazy thing that yeah. you guys did because you were so in love. Charles, who had managed to smuggle gems into Tihar prison, led a life of luxury there as the guards were easily bribed. Charles knew that the Thai authorities had a warrant out for his arrest in relation to the murders he had committed on Thai soil. And he knew that if he was ever tried in Thailand, he would definitely receive the death penalty. So Hmm. he also knew that this warrant would be annulled after 20 years, like it would be invalid. So, content with the life he had made for himself in the Indian prison, Sabraj intentionally extended his time there by hosting a party for fellow inmates and guards alike, where he drugged everyone and escaped. He was quickly caught, and his sentence was extended another what? 10 years, thereby avoiding certain death in Thailand. This is the most bizarre thing I think, <laughs> I think I've ever heard. <laughs> what the fuck? He held a party. <laughs> I mean, like, you could stop there, and that would be insane enough. It's like, yeah, I, I'm in prison, I held a party for everyone. <laughs> everyone as well like just and the guards yeah it's just the most bizarre thing and then i drugged everyone (laughs) what the what 
And like everyone was so trusting of this guy who's known for drugging people and killing them that they were like, yeah, these beverages that you somehow acquired. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pour me some more of that. That sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck is wrong with these people? And what is wrong with this guy? So, but it worked because because he'd escaped, his sentence was extended and therefore he wasn't eligible to be deported back to Thailand and tried for his murders. Charles became something of a celebrity over the course of his trial and imprisonment, giving exclusive interviews to journalists in which he described the murders he had committed in great detail, while somehow simultaneously denying his responsibility for them, and I'm not sure how. (laughs) In 1997, at the age of 52, Charles Sobrage's sentence came to an end and he was extradited to France, a free man. Upon returning to France, Sabraj basically lived like a minor celebrity, reportedly asking for as much as $15 million for the rights to make a movie based on his life. This lavish lifestyle was obviously a slap in the face to all the families of the victims and investigators who had worked Mm. tirelessly on the case. In a completely baffling move, and for totally unknown reasons, Charles returned to the only country on the face of the earth that had an outstanding warrant for his arrest, Nepal. He was immediately arrested upon his arrival in 2003. <laughs> what a joke. Sabraj appealed the conviction, claiming that he had been sentenced without trial. But he remains in a Nepalese prison to this day. Oh my god, he's still alive. I yeah. actually didn't know that. He's still alive. He is just living his life in Nepal. But why And some people speculate that? that he only did it because he was, you know, he wasn't getting as much attention what kind of prison is he in now? Like, I'm just trying to think of a scenario where that's the ideal situation. I'm not totally clear on what the general vibe of this prison is, but a few years ago, he claimed, like, he held an interview with a journalist stating that he'd married a uh, Nepalese woman who was, like, 19 or something at the time. And the the authorities at the prison denied this, saying that they hadn't, you know, he wasn't allowed to marry her. All that had happened was that her family had come round and they'd performed a traditional marriage ceremony. So they're engaged, kind of. But I'm like, I don't understand how you would be able to come round to a prison with your family and do that. Unless it was a pretty lax prison Mm. to begin with, but... Sometimes you're allowed to have, because of the value that society places on things like marriage, sometimes you are allowed to get married in prison. But it is... But it is bizarre to have so many family kind of be allowed to go. I'm just, I'm still trying to work, I'm still trying to get my head around, like, why this would be his ideal scenario. Because he had all the control in this situation. Mm. And we know, and he might over-exaggerate his intelligence, but he's definitely not stupid. He knows Mm. that if he goes back to Nepal, he's getting, (laughs) he's getting arrested. So what is, what is the game plan, like, is it, is it the comfort almost of the guaranteed life that goes on and on, if you see what I mean? As opposed yeah. to now I have to deal with my own shit and he doesn't know any life outside of being a criminal. Yeah. And he's so high profile now that you could never be a criminal again, kind of, on that scale. You can never be a criminal again and he can never do anything else. Yeah. Maybe it's just a thing where it's like, well, God, where can I go and what can I do? Might as well go to a prison. Yeah, because then at least you know every day I do this every day I do that and then someone's in charge of my welfare which is kind of something that he's always been looking for like 
But the other thing I was going to say is that it could be that this is totally like insane. But you know, he has this thing of like wanting to be to give the impression that he's in control of everything. And maybe he's just like, what if I did the most outlandish, incomprehensible thing ever, but I pretended like I've got something going on, like I've got a plan, but I'm not going to tell you mm. what the plan is. I'm realizing that this is a very long episode yeah. by now. So I don't know how I'm going to send you this uh, file, but... I don't know how I'm going to edit this. This is going to be crazy. So throughout our discussion of this case, I've sort of skirted around the motives for Sabraj's murders. And before I get into the theories, do you have any theories as to what drove him to murder? Basically, I think his pure kind of disregard for other people other than pawns in a kind of plan for his mm. own life is basically guaranteed to end in taking someone's life, if you see what I mean. Mm. It's like the natural escalation of... I don't give a fuck about anyone except myself. Yeah. Boy, it is like a God thing where it's like, I control life and death now. Yeah, eventually, if you go down, if you keep going down that path of being essentially a sociopath, not caring about what anyone, how anyone else feels, but also constantly looking, constantly looking for success and mm, wealth and things like that, but not wanting to actually work for it <laughs> yeah you know naturally that's going to end in crime and then that kind of spirals so I think it's just like it's almost the logical end sadly to his story if you look through his early childhood of trying to get attention of not being not feeling that he belongs anywhere literally being born a stateless person that doesn't exist yeah I don't disagree with that but I will say that he has a biological sister who never killed anyone. Yeah. Who went through many of the same things he did. It is true. It's true. But um, but I guess he went, he's slightly older and he was slightly more aware of the relationship between his parents. And he was abandoned in, in um, Vietnam by his mm. mom, which she wasn't. Yeah. It's hard because it's like, where does that start? Because he... He he is treated he is treated differently than his, yeah. than the other children. Even the sister who is technically has the same storyline as he does, but he's treated differently because of his behaviour. So, yeah, but why does he behave in that? But way? why does he behave exactly? Like so whole... you so you can keep going around in that circle and be like, whose fault is it? But at the end of the day, it's like that's just the natural. It's, I mean, mm. but then you're right. You have to ask yourself why do so many people not do things like this when they've had yeah. such similar lives and many people have had worse lives mm. and haven't done things like this so according to sabraj himself are you ready for this um <laughs> he was actually hired as a hitman okay <laughs> and he his job was to take out people who had somehow crossed his supposed employer who he said worked in the drug trade and this is actually plausible to a certain extent because many of the victims were somehow involved in the drug trade. Either they were occasional smugglers like Teresa Knowlton or Connie Bronzich, or they were actual dealers like Vitali Hakim. Hmm. And, then, and then on top of this, he also adds another layer to it by stating that his crimes were driven by an anti-imperialist desire for revenge. <laughs> Okay. So that's his explanation for the murders. 
Herman Nippenberg, however, theorizes that Sobraj's murders were driven by a simpler desire. He refutes Sobraj's claims of life as a professional hitman by pointing out that hitmen are generally isolated from others, um, they work alone, and they're very discreet. So Sobraj's flamboyant lifestyle completely goes against these claims. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's something. But so Nippenberg believed that Charles's childhood fear of being abandoned had become an overwhelming part of his personality. And he theorized that Sobraj had tried to persuade his victims to join his quote-unquote family that he was building for himself at Kenit House, trying to woo them over to his life of crime. And when they refused, he was sort of thrown back to his deepest childhood fears that he had not been able to persuade these people to stay. And worse, they knew about his illegal activities and could turn on him. Mm. So in order to regain control and to prevent them from leaving him, he had killed them. Which I think is an interesting theory. And I find slightly more plausible than the idea that he was a hitman. Oh, it's definitely more plausible than being... <laughs> like, I just want to say that I, like, off the bat, I completely discount the hitman claim. I think I think that's just him, his desire to deflect responsibility while also maintaining this... That there's an elaborate scheme that nobody understands. You know, it's yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's basically just total nonsense. So that's it for the life and crimes of Charles Sobrage. Thank you for listening to this episode. Charles Sobrage led a very rich life, as you can tell by the length of this episode. And the details of this life are absolutely fascinating. And obviously, you know, I had to leave quite a lot out. But if you're interested in learning more about his life and crimes, I would definitely recommend the book On the Trail of the Serpent by Richard Neville and Julia Clark. And you're reading another book. Yeah, Serpentine by certainly a name. This guy's called Thomas Thompson. That's that, uh, that just <laughs> seems like cruel. being called Jack Jackson in my opinion. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, we're also on social media. If you'd like to connect with us there, we'd love to hear from you. On Twitter at About Murder, on Instagram at A Podcast About Murder. And on facebook.com slash a podcast about murder with no E. And you can always send us an email at a podcast about murder at outlook.com. That's that for this episode. Um, <laughs> we wish you a pleasant weekend. Right. I'm going to stop it now. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>